0: As I was planning our sermons out over the summer, and I was thinking about what I wanted to um, dig into as we're looking at Christmas, I kept coming back to the theme. It's one of the four themes of Advent, which is peace. And a large part of that probably had to do with what I personally have needed this year, um, but also what our world has needed and what what we as a congregation, what, what we as God's people always need. And so we're gonna be focusing in on that one theme which is peace. And each week we're going to look at a different situation in which we can receive peace. Today we're talking about peace for the waiting. We're going to talk about peace for the guilty, peace for the hurt, peace for the grieving. And today, though, I want to introduce this idea of peace because when you turn to the Bible to talk about peace, there's a bit of translating that has to happen. And I also think there's a bit of a puzzle to what the angels said about peace that we don't necessarily delve into very much, but it's, they actually say something very, very strange about peace. But first, let's talk about what the Bible means when it says peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, it, it includes our, what our word peace means, but it's much broader than that. So we generally think when we talk about peace, we're thinking of the absence of war or the absence of conflict. And that is part of the Hebrew concept of shalom. But shalom might be better translated as wholeness or completeness. Um, A a really good phrase for how we use the word peace would be saying to be at peace. And when you think of that kind of the, uh, the Jewish Conception of peace, what you realize is that it is something that everybody is looking for. We are all looking for peace. Because peace includes being whole, it means having the missing parts of your life restored, it means that everything is in its place. It also can mean rest, having peace from your labors, being able to stop. Uh, striving and struggling. And it can also ultimately mean fulfillment. To be at peace is to have everything in its place, to have your labors completed, to be able to sit back and rest and be fulfilled. For me, as I mentioned, as we were talking about how to decorate, the picture we talked about being at peace, we talked about being comfortable and cozy, and I liked to think about Sitting at home next to a fire, it's cold outside, but it's warm inside, there's no work to do, there's nothing wrong with the world. I also like the idea, you know, when it's snowing and the snow is falling and silently hitting the ground. Of course, I don't want to be out in it, then I'm cold, and I mean, I like the snow, but that, it doesn't feel peaceful to be out in it, but to be warm inside, watching it silently fall, that feels like peace to me. And that's something that we're all striving for. And I say striving because I don't think any of us in our best moments, if we're really honest, would say we've ever found complete and total peace. We're always missing something. But in the scale of peace, sometimes things are more peaceful and sometimes things are less peaceful, but we're all striving for it. And depending on what's going on in your life or what's going on in the news, you may feel more or less at peace in this season. But right now, especially if you're looking in the news, with the conflicts that have erupted around the world, we can see there is there, a distinct lack of peace in the world, which makes it very strange that 2,000 years ago, a group of angels appeared Uh, they didn't appear necessarily, it doesn't tell us they appeared in the sky, and it doesn't tell us that they sang, but it does tell us that they said, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. Or in the traditional King James that made it into all the Christmas carols, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now it actually, We figured out that that's not a completely accurate translation because it means peace to the people that God has goodwill for. Peace to God's people. But more stark than that, more surprising than that, is that grammatically what they are saying is now, like they've come to announce something, right? And what they are announcing is now there is glory in heaven and now there is peace on earth. In 4 B.C., Probably, roughly. Jesus wasn't actually born in 1 AD. He was probably born in like 4 BC. 2,000 years ago, the angels said, there is peace on earth. That was before Hamas. That was before the war in the Ukraine. It was before 9-11. It was before um, Jim Crow laws. It was before two world wars. It was before the Holocaust. It was before the displacement of the Native Americans. It was before the transatlantic slave trade. It was before the Black Death. It was before the fall of the Roman Empire, before all of these things. Apparently, the angels claim that peace has been here all along. And the question is, how is that even remotely possible? How is that plausible, that before, that peace has been here all along, even though all those things have happened since peace apparently arrived. How can peace be on earth when, there's, when it's so clearly not? And how is it that people 2,000 years later still believe this claim that there is peace on earth? That's what I want to dig into with this series. That's what I want us to look at is how, how it makes sense to say that peace has been on earth for 2,000 years. And in each of these sermons, we are going to look at a person who had an encounter with Jesus from which they walked away at peace. And it may seem obvious to us that oh, well, an actual face-to-face encounter with the creator of the universe in the flesh could give me peace in the here and now. If God did that, I could expect peace. But this whole peace has been here all along, it's here and now thing is... I, I don't get it, so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the very first person to walk away from an encounter with Jesus at peace we're going to talk about Simeon Simeon had his encounter with Jesus when he was when Jesus was eight days old. So if we want to look at how we the message of the birth of Jesus could possibly mean the the entrance of peace into the world, how we can find peace simply in the birth of Jesus, Simeon is a good place to start, because he found peace meeting the Messiah at eight days old. I'm going to read for us this passage from Luke chapter 2. I know we stood for the reading for the last series. Now that we have couches in here, I'm not going to have you stand for the reading. Um, but I'm going to read for us this story about Simeon, and, and this takes place in the preceding verses. We hear that um, Joseph and Mary have brought Jesus to the temple when he's eight days old in order to have him circumcised, and they, are going to ha- they have these two encounters, one with a prophetess named Anna and one with a man named Simeon. Starting in verse 25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we look at the story of Simeon, the, we get his brief biography, and it says that he was a man in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout, that means he had a a right relationship with God, and he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. Now to us, that doesn't, this isn't a very clear statement, it's kind of vague, but For the audience that Luke was writing to, it would have been a very clear reference to a very common theme in the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament in Greek, specifically Isaiah, which was the early church's favorite book of the Bible probably. It was Isaiah and Psalms were their their favorite books. You'd find that word appearing a lot, the the root word in Greek. Um, And you find it in some passages from Isaiah that we're very familiar with because of their connection with the story of Jesus. For instance, the passage that tells us in Isaiah about the coming of John the Baptist says, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God. "'Speak tenderly to to Jerusalem and announce to her "'that her time of hard service is over, "'her iniquity has been pardoned, "'and she has received from the Lord's hand "'double for all her sins.'" That word comfort is the same word as consolation. And in this passage, Comfort means God is telling Isaiah to tell the Israelites that their punishment is over. As a nation, Israel had rebelled against God and they'd rebelled against the covenant. Their mission had been to represent God to the nations and they had failed at that. So the only way God could be clear with the nations about his own character was to say, not that, not what they're doing. And the way he did that was by sending them into exile. And at this point, when, when Jesus is born, it's been 500 years of exile and oppression and the Israelites understood that to be a result of their sin they're doing their time as a result of their sin as a people and the message from Isaiah the consolation is that time is over you've paid your debts you've done your time and now God is going to put everything right again oh I missed part of it or no I I just went back slide that's right we're good. There's another passage where this comes up. This is the passage that Jesus used to describe his own ministry. When he went into the, uh, the, the tab- er, synagogue in his hometown and announced his ministry, he stood up and he did the reading for the congregation, and he read this passage. The spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. Now, when you read the part that's quoted in Luke, you get just the introduction, but if you read the rest of it, you see specifically what Isaiah is talking about and what Jesus is referring to, what that comfort looks like. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. He's talking not just about the suffering of individual people, but also the suffering of all of Israel. He's talking about the the consequences of their, uh, their exile. He's talking about Everything that is wrong in their world. And consolation, comfort, is God's res- compassionate response to their suffering. So when, Simon says, when it says that Simon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, it says he was waiting for God to deliver Israel from all of the suffering they were going through. Specifically, conflict, the wars they've been caught up in, oppression from the Romans, the guilt that they felt as a people because of their sins, and in general, the struggle that life was to be in a backwater of the Roman Empire, taxed into the dirt, and scratching out a living in this province. He was waiting for God to deliver them from this. It's very present, very real. It does not get more practical than the kind of deliverance that Simeon was looking for. And it never, in in terms of the simplest way to interpret that passage or the most literal way to interpret that passage, it never really happened. What actually happened was that about a hundred years later, after several Jewish rebellions, the Romans just came in and destroyed all the settlements and banned Jews from living in Jerusalem anymore. And yet, when Simeon holds Jesus in his hands, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah... He says, Now you can dismiss your servant in peace as you've promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. What is Simeon seeing in Jesus? He sees a baby, and he knows that the baby is the Messiah. So what he has gotten is one tiny sliver of of a glimpse into god's plan active in the world none of the good parts right like it's the messiah but the messiah can't control his own bowels yet like it's not it's not the exciting parts of the story this is the this is the backstory right this is the prologue but he gets this one tiny sliver of the story but the important thing is it's happening right in front of him it's in his hands, this one little glimpse of God's redemption story. So, in Jesus, Simeon saw God's plan at work in the present. Not fulfilled, right? Jesus wasn't even a man yet. He didn't see the crucifixion, he didn't see the resurrection, he didn't see the second coming. He just saw the, the young life of the Messiah. But he saw this one glimpse. And the amazing thing about Simeon was that that one glimpse was enough to give him peace. Because he says, now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. Now, if you're like me, you always assume that means he's going to wander off and die. It's not what he means. He's not saying you can send me to death. Although the two common uses for this passage is reciting it before bed and reciting it before death. What he's really saying about dismissing him is he really means dismissing him from his vigilance, his, his term of service, because he's been keeping watch. He's been staying around the temple and watching for the Messiah, and now he doesn't have to watch anymore. So he's being dismissed from his assignment, but he's being dismissed in peace, in wholeness, in fulfillment. Now, why is it enough to just see the baby? Because Simeon has a very important trait, a trait, the only trait that makes peace available to us in the here and now, and that is faith. Now we often think that faith is blind optimism. It's just believing by sheer willpower that good things will happen instead of bad, or believing things that you've never seen before, like in, in fairies or in aliens or, you know, things like that you have no evidence for. That's not what faith means. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that because that kind of sounds like what uh, the author of Hebrews says. He says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. But the question is, why can't you see it? It's not because it may or may not exist. What we're talking about is something that no one can see. We're talking about the future. All of us make decisions about the future on faith. I got married on faith. My wife married me on faith that she could trust me to keep the vows that I said. She cannot see the future. So that doesn't to say that it was a blind decision, that she had no evidence and has no, like it's a 50 50 shot whether I'm actually going to keep, I hope it's better than 50-50. I certainly intend it to be better than 50-50. She made a very informed choice, a surprising choice, but an informed choice. All the more surprising for being informed. (laughs) But it was on faith because she can't actually see the future. And so she's making a decision on something she cannot see either way. In a way, it would have been faith to decide, no, I can't trust him. Either way, she's making a decision about something she cannot see because it hasn't happened yet. Faith is when we make a decision about what we are going to trust, who we are going to trust for the future based on what we have seen now. And so what Simeon does is Simeon, he sees this one tiny sliver of God's plan happening right in front of him. And his faith means that he trusts, if I have seen this one tiny sliver, then I can take it as an already accomplished fact that everything else is going to happen just the way God said it would. Seeing the baby Jesus is as good as seeing the resurrection. Even though he didn't know, he would have no way of knowing exactly how it was all going to. But for him, seeing the, seeing the baby Jesus is as good as seeing the resurrection. It's as good as seeing the second coming. It's as good as seeing any part of the plan because the plan doesn't fail. If it's happening, it's happening and it's all going to happen. And so because he knows that God's, seeing this one tiny sliver of God's plan means that God's plan is definitely going to happen, he is able to have Through faith, he is able to have peace because he knows, I don't know what consolation for Israel is going to look like, I don't know what timeline it's going to happen on, but I know God hasn't forgotten us because I've seen his Messiah as a baby and God is going to work through that Messiah and he's going to accomplish his plan. I just know what's going to happen on faith. Not faith that's uninformed or unreasonable, but simply faith that looks forward to something no human being can see, which is the future. So Simeon had faith, which is trust that God's plans will be completed in the future. So how does faith bring peace into our present? What does this mean for us? What does that look like? Well, there's two important ways in which faith brings the hope of the future, the peace of the future, into our present. First and foremost, by faith, we can experience the peace of the future in the here and now. We can feel it. This is what we saw in Simeon. This Simeon felt the peace. He felt, he, 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 he no longer had anxiety about the future of Israel. He no longer had wonderment. He simply, he was at peace. He was full because he knew that that fullness would come. We see an example, Jesus is pointing this, this idea out, this, this, the fact that you can have peace in the present to his disciples when they take a trip across the lake in a boat and they encounter a little bit of rough seas. It says, one day Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Jesus says, Where is your faith? The fact that something that they did indicated that they did not have faith in Jesus. Because if they had faith in Jesus and who he is, then they would know that God's plan for to save the world is not going to get overwhelmed by a storm. That God is ultimately in some way responsible for, right? Like he's, he, he has control over all of that. So they should have known that a storm was not going to thwart Jesus. Now, here's something I want to be clear about, though. I don't believe and okay this is this is taking off my biblical sh- this is what the bible says hat and putting on the this is how i make sense of what the bible says hat okay what did they do wrong I don't believe that it was their fear that was wrong It wasn't the fact that they were afraid It wasn't the fact that they got seasick and lost their lunch over the side So much of that fear is a reaction that you can't control I don't think that we're expected to never fear. I think what they did wrong in the sense of showing that they didn't have faith was that they, in their fear, they felt like, you know, Jesus must not know what's going on. We need to wake him up and ask him to intervene because if we don't do that, then we're all going to die. I mean, I challenge you to go through a storm in a small open boat and not be afraid, But what Jesus is responding to is the fact that in their fear, they thought, you know, if we don't step in and tell Jesus what to do, we're all going to drown. And I'm not saying that they sinned, I'm saying that that action revealed that they did not, they had room for faith, for more faith in who Jesus is and what that means because they can then know. As terrifying as this storm is, and as much of my lunch as I've lost over the side, and as crazy as this is, I know ultimately it's not going to overwhelm God's purposes. That's what faith does, is it gives us, in the midst of a storm, that sense of, of peace, of confidence, that in the midst of my fear, I don't have to be controlled by it. I don't have to be overwhelmed by it. And I'm not going to be saved in this situation by my ability to take control. I'm going to be saved by the fact that God has control and he always has. I don't actually have to wake him up. He's already in control. It can change your attitude in the here and now and allow you to feel, to experience storms with peace. But faith is not... The, the peace that the angels talked about, though, was not just about feeling good. It was not just about something that happens in our hearts. There are a lot of ways you can make yourself feel good. There are, there are a lot of drinks out there you can use to, uh, to try and address your anxiety, right? But that ultimately is not, what, is not healthy, and it's not, it's not ultimately a solution. But the peace that God offers us is more than just feeling better about things. There's also a way to bring the peace of the future into the here and now. As I was studying for this, uh, I, I got to thinking about other messages that we hear about peace. And I mean, there's, it's a common theme in Christmas songs, and as Christmas songs, you know, there's more secular Christmas songs. You get secular perspectives on peace, and perhaps the most famous is um, Happy Xmas, War is Over by uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Ah, so this is Christmas. Anyway, I'm sure you've heard it, probably. But it was paired with this huge advertising campaign that they did. Billboards and stuff that say, War is over in big letters. Can you read what it says in little letters? Or maybe just remember if you were there in the... It's, it's, uh, war is over if you want it. This was the message of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. That if war can stop today... Nobody's forcing us to fight. Nobody's forcing us to shoot each other. War can stop today if you want it. So all we need is to want it enough. Evidently, we don't. But see, this is, this is, there's a problem with that perspective. It assumes that the reason why we don't have peace, the reason why we have war is because we don't want peace enough which doesn't address those people who are fighting as a means of accomplishing peace, right? There are people who go out and fight because they see it as the only way to establish and to keep the peace. We give guns to people called peacekeepers, right? Because, you see, the thing is, the problem is not just that we don't want peace enough. Ultimately, the drive of conflict in our world is not always hate sometimes it's hate but it is always fear there is always fear involved because we did not stockpile nuclear weapons out of hate and out of a desire to eventually use them on the soviet union right why did we build up nuclear weapons to protect ourselves from their nuclear weapons because we were afraid that they would send theirs. So mutually assured destruction is the military doctrine that says, build up enough weapons so that if they start the war, they won't survive either. That, that's fear, right? This is why it's not just a matter of deciding. We want peace, so we'll have it. We're all afraid of each other, right? Because we don't have anything firm to trust in to tell us that there's hope for peace to happen. So it's not just a matter of wanting it enough, which is why it hasn't happened. It's a matter of, of John Lennon can't offer anybody a reason to believe that if you put your gun down, the other person will put their gun down too. Right? We're not putting down our nukes until you put down your nukes. We're not putting down our guns until you put down your guns. But what's the problem is they're not putting their guns or nukes down until we put ours down, right? If peace is going to happen in the present, there has to be some assurance that peace will ultimately win out. And it is by faith that we know that that is the case. That we can live differently in the present because we know how the story ends. The story has been spoiled for us, folks. I don't know if you've read the the last book of the Bible, but we know who wins. And people don't like stories being spoiled because it takes all the tension out of it. Usually, but for us, even though we know the end, we still live in a lot of tension, don't we? We still act really fearful, don't we? But this is how Jesus taught his disciples to live. He says, don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. It's that easy. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things and your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometimes when we look in that passage, we think that that means, oh, just be focused on the future and don't think about the here and now. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, let what you know about the future shape how you live in the here and now. Notice that putting your treasure in heaven affects how you spend your money here. It affects what you invest in here. And it is because we know that peace is how the story ends that we can act out peace in our present. So peace is here now. In many ways, the peace of the future comes back and and is brought into our present because it changes the way we live. We can live at peace. We can act not out of fear but out of love. We can be different and we can make our world different. A great example of this is the famous Christmas Truce of 1914. Beginning of World War I, first winter, um, when Christmas hit and they were in their trenches, they started singing carols, the Germans did. And the thing is, the uh, English took a lot of their carols from the Germans, so they knew the tune. They didn't know the words, but they knew the tune. So they started singing Christmas carols, and then they started coming out of their trenches and playing soccer games together and and holding joint Christmas services. They came together and they went to church together. I don't know what language they preached in, but they they worshiped together. And that was because in that season, they had had faith that the world was going to end in something other than the war they were caught up in. The interesting thing is, it only happened once because the authorities cracked down on it. Because if you want to win a war, you can't let your soldiers think that the other people are human beings and that you're going to live at peace with them someday. So they cracked down hard and never let it happen again. But the point is, we can live differently in the present because we know that the story ends with the peace that Jesus Christ brings. So by faith, we can bring the peace of the future into the here and now. As I close, there's three things that I want you to remember. You forget everything I've already said if you remember these three things, okay? First and foremost, there is peace on earth if you will accept it from Jesus. It's not a matter of whether you want it or not. That's where John Lennon got it wrong. It's not a matter of just wanting it. You have to receive it from Jesus because somebody has to set things right. And Jesus is the one who sets things right. And if you don't have that peace, if you don't have that assurance of how the story ends, today is the day for you to find that peace by giving your life to Jesus. Because there is goodwill, there is peace on earth for all of God's people. Second, I want you to remember that we find peace now by trusting that God will complete his plan of deliverance. All the things that you're afraid of, not saying that you're a bad person for being afraid of them, right? Just like in the ship. You're gonna feel the fear because we don't actually know the future. We feel that fear. The fear isn't what's wrong. But you can experience the peace if you answer that fear with faith that in spite of how scary the waves look right now, you know how the story ends. The story's been spoiled for you. You can experience that peace now. And finally, we can bring peace to the world by acting on our trust in God's deliverance. Because this isn't just about making you feel good. This is about making you do good. This is about changing the way we live, changing the way we love others, changing the way we shape the world around us, and that peace can be made present in us and through us when we act in faith, knowing how the story will end. Amen? I'm going to invite our praise team to come up and as they do, I'm going to ask you to consider what decision God may be putting on your life. God may have called something to mind for you. Maybe you do need to give your life to him and find that peace for the first time. Maybe you need to uh, spend time in prayer and communion with him so that you can answer the anxiety or the fears that you're feeling with faith. Maybe you need to find opportunities to live out your faith and and shape the world around you. Maybe there's something that God is bringing to mind that you know of, some kind of step that he wants you to take. I would encourage you to not let this moment pass, but to identify that and to commit to acting on it. In the seatbacks in front of you, unless you're sitting behind a couch, then it would be seatbacks next to you. You will find cards that we have. Uh, The red one is about ways you can connect with the church and with God. The green one is about ways you can join small groups and get connected with our community and grow in faith and love. And the blue one has opportunities for how you can serve. If you want to fill out one of those cards and drop them in the boxes in the back, um, we'll follow up with you. But please... Whatever decision God is putting on your heart, don't let it pass without following, without following His will. Amen? I invite you to stand now as we sing joyful, joyful, to proclaim the joy. It's not Christmas.